Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Mikhail Sergeyev on March 22, 2021. Mikhail was born and raised in Moscow, where he received his bachelor's degree in international journalism. In 1990, he moved to the United States to pursue his doctoral studies. Mikhail works as an adjunct professor of religion and philosophy at the University of Arts in Philadelphia where he received the President's Distinguished Teaching Award in 2010. He co-chairs and serves on the faculty of the Department of Religion, Philosophy, and Theology at the Wilmette Institute, as well as on the faculty of Temple University in Philadelphia. He is the author of more than 200 scholarly, journalistic, and creative works that are published or presented all over the world. He has authored and edited 12 books, including the monograph, Theory of Religious Cycles, Tradition, Modernity, and the Baha'i Faith, and an anthology entitled Russian Philosophy in the 21st Century. That was published in 2020. I started the interview by asking Mikhail where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in the Soviet Union, in Moscow. I was born in 1960. The Soviet Union was a unique atheist empire in human history, so our religious life was non-existent. The churches were persecuted, people baptized their children secretly, because if you baptize your child and let your co-workers know about that, you will have problems with your career and maybe with your work, especially if your work is related to ideology, and everything in the Soviet Union was somehow related to ideology. So my grandparents came from different religions. My mother is a Jew, and her parents were Jewish, but they did not practice their Jewish religion. My paternal grandparents came from Orthodox Christian family with some occasional Lutherans. I have one of my great-grandparents who was Latvian, and he was Lutheran. But overall, it was Jewish-Christian background, cultural background. But uh, no one professed any beliefs or practiced any religion when I was growing up in my childhood. In fact, I never saw anyone pray until I came to the United States in my 30s. So I uh, grew up as an atheist in school, and then after finishing uh, the school, the high school, I was accepted as a student at the Moscow State University of International Relations. Actually, the formal name is Moscow State Institute of International Relations, but it has a status of a university. It prepared Soviet diplomats, journalists, economists, and lawyers. So I was accepted into the faculty of international journalism. Now, what I have to say about my generation of people is that I believe 
we belong to this unique generation of Soviet people who were the last Soviet people. There were three generations of Soviet people, my grandparents, my parents, and myself. And our generation turned out to be the last one. But the uniqueness of our generation was not that we became the last Soviet generation, but we, I think, were the only generation of people in whole human history who were cut off from any religious tradition whatsoever. I know that every nation in the history of humanity has some kind of religion and religious beliefs. So maybe you lose your faith, but your children come back to your faith, or maybe they come to another faith. You still have some connection with some kind of religion. But our generation, the third generation of the Soviet people, grew up in a spiritual vacuum. Well, a religious vacuum, because you can be spiritual without being religious. But religious vacuum, it was. And it was a very strange situation. I did not quite understand this situation until I was in my uh, mid-twenties. So, Mikhail, the reason you're saying that your generation, which was the last Soviet generation, was raised in a religious vacuum, is that because in the case of your parents, they at least had their parents with some level of religious background raising up the second generation uh, versus none of that occurring in your generation? Is that what you mean? Uh, even more than that. Even my grandparents did not have any religion. Uh, when my grandparents grew up in Russia, let's say one of my grandparents was born in 1910, before the revolution, his parents, uh, yes, were religious. They were Orthodox Christian. So he was baptized like everybody was back then, and he had some uh, religious upbringing, if not formal, if not educational, but family-based. But my grandparents themselves, after the revolution, lost their faith, and they became part of the Soviet cultural fabric. And therefore, my parents already were growing up without a religious tradition. And they were the second generation, and our third generation found ourselves in a complete religious vacuum. And why not your parents' generation? Why were they not in a complete religious vacuum or whatever? Well, they were probably in a vacuum, but again, they were closer to pre-revolutionary mm, Russia gotcha. than we were. They were born in 1930s. And the 1930s, only 20 years after the revolution, they also remembered their grandparents. And their grandparents were religious, uh, both from the Jewish side and from the Christian side. So they had some personal encounter with religion. Our generation didn't. And I think that that is unique. What were the circumstances, Mikhail, that brought you to the United States? When I was about 23, 24 years old, I already realized that the communist ideology was deeply wrong. So I rejected it in my 20s. But my problem was that communist ideology was not simply an ideology in the Soviet Union. It was like a religion. It was a religion substitute. 
In other words, communist ideology cemented everything in our spiritual upbringing. It had the moral code of a young communist. It had its position with regard to religion. It had its position with regard to politics, etc., etc. When someone rejects such an all-encompassing worldview, this person would feel emptiness that probably could be compared with an emptiness you may feel when you lose your religion. So when uh, I was 24 years old, on the wake of Perestroika, which started in 1985, I found myself in a spiritual crisis because life did not make sense. Not only life in the Soviet Union did not make sense, not only my personal life did not make sense, but life in general didn't make sense because I still was an atheist. I did not believe there is a God. And since I did not believe in communism any longer, I could not figure out why and how should I keep living. So this spiritual crisis that started around 1984 lasted for about 30 years. It is because of this crisis that eventually I found myself in the United States. So that is a general answer. Now let me be more concrete. I was always interested in various spiritual and religious teachings simply because I lacked religious education. We studied world religions in the university. There was a course that was called Scientific Atheism. When I was coming to the United States, I even brought with me this book. I think in 200 years, that would be a rarity. So Scientific Atheism, that was my horizon in terms of religious education. Since I felt that I'm lacking everything in this area, I was always interested and was trying to read books that were self-published in Russia. It was called Samizdat, self-publishing. These were underground dissident books, usually about the history of Christianity or the history of Judaism, and also books about Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism. So I was interested in all that, including occultism. Plus, I studied languages, simply because I like studying languages, So all of that helped me when uh, I had my conversations at Temple University with people who were responsible for recruiting new students. So I had some informal knowledge, in spite of the fact that I lacked formal educational training in religion. So that is the second part of the answer. But the most important part of the answer is what really happened with me that led to my coming to the United States. When I was 26 years old, and I remember this very vividly, one evening, right before I uh, would go to bed, I suddenly had a vision of my future life. You know, believe it or not, (laughs) this happened to me once, only once. And I remember this very vividly because I was an atheist back then, But I was open to various supernatural events. There was nothing supernatural here. I just suddenly felt as if the light was turned on 
inside my head. And my consciousness became uh, not enlightened in terms of, uh, you know, enlightenment, but my consciousness became full of light. Because of that, with my mental eyes, I saw that in the future I will be working in a theater and I will be teaching. And that happened for a couple of seconds. I did not have any fear and the light was turned back off. Everything evaporated. But I told my wife, look, I just had a vision of my future life. And in my future life, I would be working in a theater and I would be teaching. And I said to her, look, I can see myself working in the theater, but what the hell could I be teaching? And I remember her being calm and telling me, look, forget about that. Let's go to sleep. And I think that's how it all started. Now, when I look back at this event, I prefer to think that that was not an accident. It was some kind of help. And eventually, yes, it did help because I was working as a journalist first and then as an editor of radio programs. And I hated my work, frankly. I did not want to be a journalist. And I was thinking about switching, but where would I switch in the Soviet Union, which was a totalitarian state? In order to find another work, you have to have either connections or party affiliation. I was not a member of the Communist Party. So basically, I was desperate, having no prospects. And once I was walking down the street and I saw an advertisement of some kind of theater studio, and somehow I got interested. And I remembered my vision and I thought to myself, what the hell, let me try it. I came to this theater studio and uh, we had an interview with the director. And the director offered me a job as a literary advisor. Now, that was the theater studio that was underground, dissident. They did political satire and they were persecuted. But that was the beginning of perestroika and people of different background, different beliefs, non-communist beliefs, slowly, but uh, were starting to arise. So anyway, I um, quit my job. My uh, parents stopped talking to me because they thought I'm going down mm. and they may <laughs> well have been right. And I went to work for the theater. I worked there for four years. It was an amazing time in my life. It gave me a lot of experience in terms of self-understanding and in terms of believing in myself. Actually, I can do what I want to do in my life and not what my parents want me to do, not what my state wants me to do, etc. And in the third or fourth year, since I knew many languages, our director sent me with some business trips, including one business trip to the United States. When I was about to go to the United States, an old friend of mine who wanted to be accepted into a, into a department of philosophy in the United States asked me to visit all the universities I can, as many as I can, and get the documents, applications, that are needed to apply. Uh, 
So with this goal in mind, I was in Philadelphia, I was in uh, San Francisco, I was in Washington, New York. And in Philadelphia, I went to Temple University. In Temple University, I saw the Department of Religion. And I never thought that there exist such departments. I knew about the departments of philosophy. I knew about the departments of theology. But I had no idea what people study in the departments of religion. So I decided to give it a shot for my friend. I uh, came uh, and saw a guy who turned out to be the chair of the department of religion, John Raines. I explained to him what is my mission. We talked for about two hours. And he was so impressed with my knowledge and my languages, etc., that he actually invited me to apply myself. So I did apply, but I had no idea how American universities are working. I had no idea that you need financial aid. Obviously, I didn't have money to go to the United States and study in the American university. But I did apply. I was accepted, to my great surprise, and then I decided, well, I have to go then. So I arranged for the visas. You have to understand that to obtain a visa in the the Soviet Union is like a heroic action, (laughs) because there are no student visas in the Soviet Union. So I cannot leave the Soviet Union as a student. I can leave only if I have a personal invitation as a guest. So I arranged for a personal invitation. I got my visa to leave the Soviet Union as a guest. Then I went to the American embassy and told them that I was accepted and gave them the document. So I obtained the American visa as a student. Later in the Russian embassy, I was told that this was illegal because I had to have the same visa. I cannot leave the country as a guest and enter another country as a student. But... Amazingly, no one stopped us at the border. We got our visas, I arranged the passports, and I bought three tickets for me, my wife, and my son. Obviously, these were a round trip. You cannot buy one-way ticket in the Soviet Union. You always have to come back. So I had to buy three round trip tickets from Moscow to New York. I had to take all my savings. I had to sell something from my apartment in order to afford those three tickets. And I went with another business trip. I remember it very vividly, August 1990. I uh, come to Temple. I meet John Raines. He probably already forgot about me, but I'm telling him proudly that I was accepted and I prepared myself for everything. I uh, show him my passports show him the tickets, I explain how difficult it it was to arrange all that, and I see in his eyes something that I cannot explain, but I, I instantly realize that I'm in big trouble, and my fate is being decided right at the moment. He probably looked at me and uh, realized that I have no idea what it means to study in the American American University, that I need financial aid, which he didn't have. So he's telling me that he doesn't have financial aid. But 
he realizes that he uh, is ruining me both psychologically and financially and uh, i saw in his eyes that he could not do it so he called the special department or service that dealt with international students and he asked them how much money the department should provide in order for me to cross the border and they told him seven thousand dollars per year so he gave it a thought he gave me that money oh from gosh. the yeah, it was like winning one million dollars in the lottery where did the money come from from the department so later he told me that he gave me some money from the department because he did not have any other resources and i was the first russian to be their student so anyway with this pink form it was called a pink form i came back to russia ready to roll so to say on december 25th of 1990 we celebrated the birthday of my wife my wife is a christmas baby but we never realized that because in russia due to the different calendars the birth of christ is celebrated 12 days later so therefore we never associated her birthday with the birthday of jesus as it is celebrated in the west and uh, we celebrated her birthday we went to the airport we went through the soviet security custom and security system and finally we arrive in the united states we are going through american custom a big guy i remember don't remember his face but i remember he was a, an african-american big guy he looks at me and asks me for the pink form and i cannot find it i say look i'm sorry but uh, maybe when i was in the american embassy they took it away from me and he's telling me i'm sorry but i cannot let you cross the border without the pink form at this moment i think i'm having a stroke i cannot move my arms literally so he opens my wife's passport and that is december 26 of 1990 he opens my wife's passport he looks at her date of birth and he exclaims oh christmas baby welcome to america and he gives us every permission and we are moving to the united states now this is a true story i think this is the work of divine providence i cannot explain it any other way so mikhail why don't you tell us your spiritual journey that took you to the united states to you becoming a baha'i so as i said i grew up as an atheist but i was never satisfied with atheism especially after i rejected the communist doctrine some doubts about atheism came to me when i was a child but nothing in school or in the university would feed me some alternative information so uh, i was lacking education i was lacking tradition i was lacking everything when it comes to religion so i got interested in religions but i was and i am a very rational man and religion is something that is not rational now my mind was open to something that is non-rational and supernatural existential emotional etc but in order to choose a religion for me i had to study the subject because as i said 
I did not have any tradition. Yes, Judaism was close to me because of my mother. You know, when I met one of my teachers in the United States, the rabbi, he told me when he came to know that uh, I'm a Jew by my mother, he told me that I'm a halachic Jew. And therefore, I am Jewish, no matter whether I want this or not. Later, he added, especially if you don't, uh, in a typically Jewish humor. So I studied uh, Hebrew in a private group because many of my friends immigrated to Israel and uh, I investigated Judaism. But although part of me is Jewish and I associate myself with the Jews, with those people, uh, still for me, it was not liberating. It was a national religion. And my upbringing was international. The Soviet communist doctrine was international from the beginning. And I never was interested in uh, nationalistic movements, either spiritual or secular. I felt that nationalism of any kind is limiting people rather than expanding their horizon. So, of course, then I got interested uh, in Christianity. But Orthodox Christianity or Christian Orthodoxy is very dogmatic and ritualistic form of Christianity. There is nothing new in terms of the ritual. There is nothing new in terms of the dogmas. And when uh, I came to the church, I felt as if the church was simply a religious face of communism. And I didn't like that. I would like to love that, but I couldn't because I um, did not experience, again, any sense of liberation or freedom or some kind of new meaning. And on the rational side, I always felt that the Soviet Union was not an accident in Russian history, that the Soviet Union has some religious significance. And the significance it had for me was that it broke completely all of the old traditions. So before the Soviet Union, people could have come back to their traditions. And that's what Russian religious philosophers did after the revolution when they immigrated. They came from Marxism to idealism and then from idealism to Russian orthodoxy. Our generation, I think, was in principle in different situation because between us and our old traditions there was an abyss and I had no way to overcome it. So that's why I realized that neither Orthodox Judaism nor Orthodox Christianity could be my religions. In the United States, when I came here, I tried various religious groups. I uh, inquired about let's say, uh, Jews for Christ, some kind of mixture of Judaism and Christianity. I was interested in Eastern religions. I was baptized into a Protestant Christian denomination, Disciples of Christ. This is an American-based Christian denomination. When I was 48 years old, that was the closest I came to Christianity formally. But here is the thing. Slowly, I realized what I cannot accept in all old religions. Ethnically, I was not an integral person. I was part Russian, part Jewish. And part of me felt at home 
in Russian Orthodoxy. Part of me felt at home in Judaism, but in either of those places, I did not feel completely home. And I was trying to reach some kind of spiritual identity in which I would embrace all of my identities, Jewish, Christian, Soviet, American. And I think that is why I finally became a member of the Baha'i community. I came to know about Baha'i faith early when I came to the United States in in early 1990s, 1993, I think. Again, I'm a systematic, rational person. I uh, ordered the books. I've read uh, everything that was published in English by Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha. Baha'u'llah is one of the twin prophets of the Baha'i faith, the founder of the Baha'i faith. And not all of his writings are translated into English, but the essential writings have been translated. So I've read that. Abdu'l-Baha is his eldest son who became the successor of Baha'u'llah as the leader of the movement after Baha'u'llah's passing. So I've read uh, Baha'u'llah's writings, and this religion appealed to me tremendously because this religion was designed, it seemed to me, for people of different ethnic, national, and religious backgrounds. People who have Russian blood, Jewish blood, who want to feel at home in different religions, and who are true internationalists. So all these features appeal to me tremendously. Plus, one other feature of this religion appealed to me, personally, because this is one of the very few, I think there is only one more religion that does that. Baha'i faith accepts most religions as legitimate, and most prophets, founders of those religions as real prophets, true prophets, including uh, Zoroaster, the founder of Zoroastrianism, and Buddha, the founder of Buddhism, and Krishna is one of the founding figures of Hinduism, and of course, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, and Muhammad. And when I became uh, part of the Baha'i faith, it seemed to me that I immediately became part of my Jewish ancestors and Christian ancestors, and also a new explanation of my Soviet and American experience came to me. It made sense about the religious dimension of the Soviet Union and the future vision for America. So why don't we get into some of your works? One of them is entitled Theory of Religious Cycles, Tradition, Modernity, and the Baha'i Faith. So what inspired you to write this book? So my work, Theory of Religious Cycles, Tradition, Modernity, and the Baha'i Faith, is the result of my spiritual crisis. I published it uh, when I was 55 years old, five years ago. And it is a summary of my explanation for my Soviet experience in light of new Baha'i religious faith. The main idea of the theory is that religions are like organic systems going through different phases in their development. And in my book, 
I traced the development of four major world religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism. As a result, I come to the conclusion that all those phases are actually, if not the same, are very similar. And religion as an organism is developed through the stage of formation, the stage of orthodoxy, the stage of the classical stage, the stage of reform, and the stage of systemic crisis. So in the course of their evolution, religion, any of the existing religions at least, go through two types of crises. One crisis is a structural crisis. The second one is a systemic crisis. The difference between structural and systemic crisis is that during the structural crisis, people start doubting sacred tradition. I have to say here that according to my theory, the backbone of a historical religion is in the interplay of its sacred scriptures and sacred tradition. So sacred scriptures form the foundation of religion and then religion develops through various sacred traditions or interpretations of the scriptures. So when uh, people start doubting those interpretations, religion goes through a structural crisis and the structural crisis is resolved by the appearance of new branches of new denominations within this religion. So, for example, if we take Christianity, the difference between Orthodoxy, Catholicism and Protestantism is simply in the differences in their sacred traditions while they uh, stick to the same scriptural text. Now, in a systemic crisis, people start questioning the scriptures, the very foundation of any religious system. The age of the Enlightenment that started in Europe in the 17th and the 18th century, according to my theory, also started the systemic crisis of Christianity. For the first time in European and later Western history, theorists and intellectuals were able to construct an all-encompassing worldview from human rationality not based on scriptures. We still live in the age of modernity, but systemic crisis of religion is always resolved only with the appearance of new religious traditions. That's what happened when Buddhism replaced Hinduism, when Christianity replaced Judaism. It does not mean that old religions cease to exist. On the contrary, old religions usually flourish as a result of new religions' appearance and because new religions also refresh the old teachings, which have to adapt to the new ones. As a result, I came up with the explanation of the existence of the Soviet Union. For me, the Soviet Union was the ultimate sign of the systemic crisis of religious consciousness that started during the Enlightenment in the 17th and the 18th century in Christianity, and then expanded into other countries and other religions. And the Soviet Union was the ultimate sign of the crisis, of the systemic crisis of three religions, Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam. These are the three religions of Russian Empire that were suppressed. So for me, it is the very existence, the rise and fall of the Soviet Union that represents the rational argument for the future of the Baha'i faith. 
Would you like to read an excerpt from Theory of Religious Cycles? Uh-huh. Uh, in the end of my book, I uh, present my thesis on modernity and the Baha'i faith, because the heart of my book is comparing Baha'i faith with modern times. And I consider modern times from the perspective of religious studies to be the systemic crisis of Christianity and then the total crisis of religious consciousness. So I may read the beginning of this part of the book. Again, this is my general understanding and general comparison between modernity and the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith is a modern religious movement that was initiated in 19th century Persia. And as such, it should be compared not only to traditional religions, but also to the ideology of modern societies. Modernity, and more specifically the Enlightenment, marks a watershed in the social evolution of Western civilization, whose influence, as it seems, will eventually extend to all of humanity. The Enlightenment thinkers formulated a rationalist worldview that aimed at social reforms on the grounds of human liberty, equality, and justice. Democratic elections, a multi-party political system, separation of the legislative, executive, and judiciary branches of power, along with the separation of church and state, constitute some of the major hallmarks of Enlightenment-type societies. Traditional religions produced a twofold reaction to the challenge of modernity. It consisted of the orthodox, or conservative, and the reformist, or liberal, responses to the ideology of the Enlightenment. The first rejects its social teachings in favor of fundamentalism and isolationism. The second embraces its egalitarian spirit while promoting ecumenical and interreligious dialogue. Unlike traditional faiths whose scriptural canons had been formed and sealed long before the advent of modern times, new religious movements have the advantage and even the obligation to respond to modernity in a different way. Every spiritual tradition has a unique point of attraction, and the attraction of modern spirituality must take into account the successes and failures of the project of the Enlightenment. Simple rejection would make those movements reactionary and equate them with a return to the Middle Ages. Simple acceptance would mean that their gods are no smarter than Thomas Jefferson and could offer nothing more worthwhile than he did. Both positions quite satisfactory for traditional religions will be self-defeating for new religious movements. And while leading to impressive short-term advances would in the long run eliminate all chance of success and successful competition with the traditional established faith. To sum up, the validity and potentials of new religious movements depend on their relation to and evaluation of modernity, along with their ability to add some positive revelatory features to the accomplishments of human reason. That is why the comparison between the Baha'i faith and modernity is crucial for the evaluation of this religion and its prospective successes on the world stage. So how would you summarize what you read, Mikhail? So in my book, I uh, compare Baha'i faith with, number one, traditional religions, and number two, modernity or modern times. And I treat modernity as the 
total crisis of religious consciousness. Now, the project of the Enlightenment, which started modernity, had its positive and negative features. Obviously, the positive features relate to the advancement of science and technology, for example. Modern-style democracy in comparison to tyranny, for example. But the project of the Enlightenment had its disadvantages. My main point in the book is to analyze the complexity of comparison between the Baha'i faith and modernity, because Baha'i faith as a new religion has to add some new revelatory features that would adjust the project of modernity to contemporary humanity. My main thesis is that Baha'i faith is neither a return back to the Middle Ages, nor a simple add-on to the modern rationalism, but instead the Baha'i faith is a repackaging of modernity in a spiritual context. So it is a spiritualized modernity, which has to be carefully unpacked in order to understand all of the advantages of Baha'i worldview over modern rationalist approaches. So another work that you wrote is called Russia Abroad, the Anthology of Contemporary Philosophical Thought. So what inspired you to write this? Actually, I published two anthologies. The anthology you mentioned was published in Russian. It is an anthology of contemporary Russian thinkers who live not in Russia, but abroad, who are immigrants. And the second anthology was published last year, in October of 2020. It is called Russian Philosophy in the 21st Century, an anthology. The main goal of both works, both books, was to understand how successfully contemporary Russian philosophy, post-Soviet Russian philosophy, reinterprets the Soviet period of Russian history. And in both anthologies, we have a variety of thinkers that discuss various subjects, philosophical subjects. Uh, Basically, the second book, Russian Philosophy in the 21st Century, is the first anthology of post-Soviet Russian philosophy in the English-speaking world. Would you like to read an excerpt from Russian philosophy in the 21st century? Yeah, a short one. The excerpt would be from the preface. This anthology provides the English-speaking world access to post-Soviet philosophical thought in Russia for the first time. We believe readers will find contemporary Russian philosophy interesting for a number of reasons. First, it addresses local, regional, and global aspects of the most pressing issues of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Reader will find themselves facing the vastness of contemporary Russian philosophy that is of importance not just to Russia but to the whole world. Second, it represents the best traditions of Russian philosophy that historically has always been closely tied to Western thought and has had a certain influence upon it. Third is the fact that the history of the Russian philosophy is not only a chronicle of spiritual quests borrowed ideas and those of indigenous original thinkers. It is also a record of the dramatic events 
endured by Russia over the last couple of centuries. Indeed, having experienced a series of great trials, tribulations, and watershed moments in Russian history, Russian philosophy reflects the social and political collisions and transformations of Tsarist, Soviet, and post-Soviet Russia. What inspired you to collect these writings? I lived in the United States for 30 years, and I consider myself a Russian-American, but still, culturally, I'm a Russian person, and I follow Russian news, and I follow Russian cultural news, and I have close ties with Russian philosophers. I'm a member of of the Russian Philosophical Society. I publish there. I have many friends there. And I wanted to introduce post-Soviet Russian thought to the Western audience. And I thought that no one else could do that. So I decided to do that and I coordinated the whole project. It took us five years to complete it. Mikhail, you're on the faculty of the Wilmette Institute. Can you tell us what the Wilmette Institute is and what your role is as a faculty member? Uh, The Wilmette Institute is an educational institution, online educational institution, that works under the auspices of the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States. It draws upon the principles of the Baha'i faith to inspire sustained social change for the common good. If you look at the site of the Institute, you will also read that its courses are designed to explore individual and collective transformation by empowering students to advance a more just and peaceful society. You know, the Institute offers a series of courses, but we obviously invite not only Baha'i students, but people of all faith or people with no faith at all. We teach students from all over the world. As a faculty member, I'm co-teaching two courses, the Baha'i Faith and Philosophy and Baha'i Theology. I co-teach these two courses with Yin Kluge. I also serve as co-chair of the Department of Religion, Philosophy and Theology and participate in uh, Wilmot Discourse webinars on various topics in religion and philosophy. The last uh, webinar that was offered was called The Issue of Self-Identity in Transhumanism and Baha'i Writings. That was offered on October 25th of last year. So, Mikhail, in closing, what is your vision of the future in regards to the world and its religions? First, I have to say that as every normal person, I have no idea what will happen (laughs) in the future. I had no vision about the future, no experiences about the future. So I can talk about the future only on the basis of my cultural upbringing, my knowledge, and more specifically, my theory of religious cycles. So that, that's what I will do. Uh, according to my theory of religious cycles, we are in the midst of global civilizational transformation. Now, this civilizational transformation is about the sunset of one religion, or many religions in this case, and the sunrise of another religion. I believe that Baha'i faith will proliferate and eventually become a global religion, but this does not mean 
that all other religions will cease to exist. In fact, according to the history of religions, we know that in the post-critical phases, old religions may flourish and uh, even may um, win the competition with the newest religion. For example, Buddhism lost its competition with Hinduism and withdrew from India since the 12th century. So my vision of the future religion-wise is the coexistence of many religious systems, peaceful coexistence, hopefully, with Baha'i faith proliferating in the next centuries. However, the history of religions demonstrates that this transformation usually takes about four centuries. Since the crisis, the systemic crisis of Christianity started in the 18th century and Baha'i faith was conceived in the 19th century, and if history will follow its own patterns, which I do not know whether it will, then I envision the Baha'i faith coming from obscurity and being taken seriously on a global scale. That should happen somewhere around the 23rd century. Now, also in the 20th century, we saw the formation of the last nations on earth in Africa. Again, we know from history that it takes about four to five centuries for a nation to mature. The example are European barbarians who conquered Rome in the fifth century and gave some kind of civilization, what we call the Middle Ages, since the ninth century. So therefore, I do not anticipate the formation of a stable global commonwealth, which is one of the goals of the Baha'i faith, earlier than 24th or 25th century. I'm sorry about those projects because people may think that I am, uh, well, pessimistic. If, of course, we want happiness and peace and prosperity as soon as possible. But, you know, those things take time, especially if we remember how many people live on earth. So global commonwealth political unity by the 24th or 25th century, that's what Baha'is call the lesser peace. However, everything develops faster nowadays. So maybe I'm simply underestimating human potentials. Now, a couple of words about the most great peace. For those who may not know the difference, Baha'is think of the lesser peace as an external political unification of humankind on a global scale. And the most great peace is a complex term that is regarded as an ideal of spiritualized humanity. Now, for me personally, it does not mean that all humans should or could or will become Baha'is. I believe that different people have different needs. And since religions, other religions will continue to exist, we will have an ensemble of religion and religious followers. But those older religions will bring about their own spiritual fruits. At least that was the biblical promise for Judaism. And this most great peace, when it will be achieved, again, I have no idea. But my last point in this regard would be that I personally do not believe in paradise on earth. I think this is a purely utopian vision because human nature is dual. We are always in conflict with ourselves. We have a lower animal 
nature and impulses. We have higher or spiritual impulses. And sometimes we succumb to our lower impulses. And sometimes we are able to overcome them and become more spiritual. So, But the, the bottom line is that every new generation starts from scratch. And they have to fight their own impulses. Therefore, evil, in principle, is impossible to eradicate. And so is the fact of suffering, the reality of suffering. Suffering is inevitable because suffering contributes to spiritual growth. Therefore, I believe that this utopian vision of paradise on earth is actually not healthy for humanity. Humanity should face obstacles. They should face evil. They should face suffering. They should spiritually grow. And therefore, the kingdom of God for me is not something that will happen in the future. But we live in the kingdom of God, in the world that we have. And that's what it is. God makes sure that humans survive. But what world they will survive in depends on humans themselves. So therefore, I'm pretty sure that we will survive, that we will have a global commonwealth, that people will be spiritualized. But to what extent? I have no idea. I have no idea what that world will look like. I, of course, hope that it will be better than ours. Mikhail, thank you so much for telling us your story and sharing your insights. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mikhail Sergeyev, a Russian-American who is an adjunct professor of religion and philosophy at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, where he received the President's Distinguished Teaching Award in 2010, and co-chair of the Department of Religion, Philosophy, and Theology at the Wilmette Institute, as well as on the faculty of Temple University in Philadelphia. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website upahighperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Up A High Perspective, as well as on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.